and turn to the book of Jonah. As Pastor Toby mentioned last week, we are starting a new series on the book of Jonah. And if you're using a pew Bible this morning, you can find that on page 774. And if you're not, and it's been a while since you've made your way to the book of Jonah, it's a little book. Um, it's about three quarters of the way in. If you find Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, it kind of gives you a little bit of context there in the Minor Prophets. Page 774. And stay tight with me. We're going to read through the whole thing. It is a short book. But it will take us a little while, about five minutes to get through, so stay with me here. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased its raging. 
Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. 
Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plants so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? And let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, this account between God, one of his prophets, and a mighty city that had turned against you. We pray for our brother, Pastor Chad, as he comes to teach us, Lord. We pray that your spirit would fill him. Lord, we pray that your word through your spirit would teach, that it would convict us, Lord, correct us, and lead us in the way of righteousness. We thank you in Jesus' name. Thank you for your patience in reading that, being a historical narrative. I felt it was important this morning to read it all in one sitting. Um, I'm just going to be dealing with the first three verses. It's kind of shocking when you read the whole thing at once. Several years ago, I was teaching a class on how to study God's Word, and I had each of the students practicing it, and one of my uh, children's teachers decided she was going to study a passage out of the book of Jonah. One of my first assignments to them was to actually go and read the whole book in one sitting so you get a broad picture of where the book is going. She came back the next week and said, I didn't know that's how it ended. Here at the she had been teaching kids for over 30 years, and she had only been teaching the section on the great fish. Had no clue what the end of the story was. Friends, we can't just look at one little story in the middle of the book. And so I wanted to get to the whole picture, at least this week as we start this series, to see it in one sitting. And now, before we start, I'm going to do something a little bit different as far as by way of introduction. I have a, a, just a very short 10 to 15 second slideshow. And I'm going to have some different images flashed up on the screen to help us kind of get in Jonah's heads. Because so often we come to the book of Jonah, we look at Jonah, and we're very quick to condemn Jonah. But I'll tell you, as I studied the book of Jonah, 
I found it very convicting. And the Lord broke my heart, showed me ways I need to change in my thinking and the way I need to look at people and to look at life and look at ministry. And so to help us all, for the next few minutes, just watch these pictures as they flash across the screen. As you see these pictures come before your eyes, what kind of emotions are stirred up within you? Thoughts? Things that you want to do? Things you want God to do? Questions? You know, even yesterday, another synagogue was shot up. We come in here... I was thinking just as we're singing, I can come up here without fear of someone coming through that back door and shooting me. We're still in that kind of freedom. Maybe the tide is turning, but dear friends, there are brothers and sisters around the world that don't have that kind of freedom. When the pastor steps into the pulpit, that may be his last time stepping into the pulpit. Some of them don't even have a pulpit they can step into. They find a place in the woods to go to. And when we see pictures like this, there's, there's certainly there's a feeling that comes up in our, in our, in our minds of saying, Where, where's God? Don't you take note of these things? Are you going to carry out your justice? When are you going to act? Where is your salvation? We think of the loss of life, the hurting families, the churches that have been disrupted. But how often when we see these pictures and think of these tragedies and acts of violence, do we go here? Lord, may we find the person behind this. That someone could take the gospel to them and warn them of the judgment that they are facing for eternity. That's not where we naturally go, is it? And yet when we come to the book of Jonah, this is Jonah. And a hundred years after Jonah comes to Nineveh, God is going to be using Nineveh to do this very thing and so much worse. Commentators have likened the Assyrians to that of Nazi Germany. And dare I say also, the abortion clinics in America. Frank Gabeline, one commentator, put it this way, in a day when prejudice and hate inflame men's emotions and pervert their judgment, Jonah speaks with compelling force about limiting our love and sympathize only to some of our fellow human beings and excluding others from our pity and compassion. This is a short little book, but its message is so highly complex, very artistic and short story. In fact, it's so complex that many commentators have disagreed on what the main message of the, of the book is. One commentator put this way, it's not intended to communicate merely one message, but messages. It's a kaleidoscope of lessons that we need to learn. The historicity of 
Jonah has also been highly debated and speculated over the, over the years. Uh, we're not sure who the author is. It could have been Jonah. Uh, no one can narrow it down to a specific date as to when it was written. In fact, the, the general consensus is a ballpark figure. Have you ready? This is really narrowed down for you. Somewhere between the 8th century and the 3rd century B.C. So there you have it. 500-year ballpark. But that's not the point. Not the date, not even the specific author. But you see, it's a, it's a theological narrative. Some have debated the historicity of the book because there are certain dates and names that are removed from the book or aren't there that if someone were teaching a history lesson, they would be sure to include. And then the unusual supernatural events in the book. Certainly. Really? No, we don't need to go looking for documented sources of someone who's been swallowed alive by a whale, although it was it March 19th, someone was half swallowed by a whale, uh, over in south, off of uh, either New Zealand or South Africa somewhere. But we don't need those things because this is a theological narrative. And when you tell a story about God, who is supernatural, what can you expect to experience but supernatural events? In fact, when you look at other historical narratives in the Bible, it's not unusual to have such miracles. In fact, Jonah sounds a lot like the accounts of Elijah and Elisha in the book of Kings. Floating axe heads, fire from heaven, a she-bear that comes out and eats a bunch of kids because they called him baldy, um, or a fish that swallows a man alive and holds him for three days and then spits him up. And it's not unusual for historical narratives in the Old Testament to exclude certain points, but to be very selective about the details that, is, that are included for the reason of teaching not just a th history, but theology through history. And so, if we have a problem with the nature of miracles and the supernatural events in the book of Jonah, we have a bigger problem than believing the historicity of Jonah, don't we? You see, we will have a problem with the whole Bible from the creation of the world in Genesis 1 by God speaking everything into existence from nothing, all the way to the end of our Bibles in, in Revelation with the recreation of the heavens and the earth. There is supernatural events all throughout in specific details intended to teach us something about our tremendous, almighty, and powerful God. There are three distinct, as I like to highlight about the book before we dig into our passage for today. This is a, a minor prophet stuck amongst the midst of 12 prophets, but it's unique for three reasons that I want to highlight. One, there's only one prophecy in this book. It's one prophecy, about eight words long, that's surrounded by this amazing story. It's also unique in that this prophecy was not going, is not a message going to God's covenant people, but it's coming to one of God's covenant people to take to a Gentile nation. Not just any Gentile nation, but the Gentile nation that would annihilate northern kingdom of Israel. So imagine, for a moment, to get into Jonah's mind, you're a Polish Jew during World War II, and God has come to you and given you a message to go to Berlin to warn them of the judgment of God on them for what they are doing. 
Would you do it? Imagine you're a Syrian refugee who has fled from the pursuit of ISIS, and God comes to you and, and prompts you and convicts you that you need to go back to Syria to find those men and to share the gospel with them. That's Jonah. But there's also another, a third unique aspect to the book of Jonah, is that is its structure. Now, if you have an ESV study Bible or a NASB study Bible, you will see this outlined or a chart uh, in the introduction to the book of Jonah. And I've actually put the, the chart up on the screen now. You'll see there's a parallel structure to this book. There are two main sections, chapters 1 and 2, and chapters 3 through 4. And in both of these sections, you have three or four main events that take place. First of all, you have the Lord commissioning Jonah to take a message, and then you have the prophet's reaction to that commissioning. Secondly, you have Jonah interacting with some group of pagan Gentiles, whether it's the pagan sailors or the pagan Ninevites. The third thing we see on both sections is then a prayer of Jonah. The first prayer, a prayer of gratitude to God. The second prayer, a prayer of anger. And then it is kind of climax with a fourth event. In, in the first section, it's just a, a short little phrase, a short little saying, salvation belongs to the Lord. And then in chapter 4, a longer section that, that gives us the theology lesson of the book. Now, friends, with this parallel structure, I hate to tell you this, but I only get the bottom left, the Lord's commissioning and Jonah's reaction. I say I'm sorry because when I get done today, there's going to be a lot left uncovered, a lot of questions that aren't going to be answered until that last section. So come back every week, pay careful attention, hang on, take careful notes, because there's a lot of little words and phrases and themes that I'm going to introduce today that are going to be traced all the way through the book, that hold this book together, but also help reinforce the lesson that God has intended for us to get out of this book, or shall I say, lessons. So our big idea for today is, as we look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 1, God sends His servant with His Word to save sinners. God sends His servant Jonah with His Word to save sinners, specifically the Ninevites. We're going to look briefly at this, but then in the New Testament, Jesus was one of the ones that actually quoted and referred to Jonah and his teaching in Matthew and Luke to say that Jonah was actually pointing to me. I am a fulfillment of the prophet of Jonah. Now, after reading the story, it's like, how in the world? We'll get there. But Jesus said of himself, says, someone greater than Jonah is here. Someone greater than Jonah. So we have to spend just a little bit and talk about the Lord's commissioning. Jesus commissioning from the Father to be sent to a world of sinners, not with His Word, but as the Word. And then, third, we'll come back and we'll think about how does this all fit together and impact God's commissioning of us to the world that He has put us in. So let's start by reading John, uh, Jonah 1, 1 through 3 again. Now the Word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish 
from the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So the whole book starts with this phrase, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. This is a phrase, the word of the Lord came to, is a phrase that's repeated over a hundred times in the Old Testament. In fact, when you see it, it is most often referred to coming to a prophet, God coming to one of his selected prophets to give an authoritative, powerful, earth-shaking, life-transforming message to his covenant people. And as you see this being played out, you see his prophets responding, carrying it to his people, and you see the authority that goes with it. However, the first time we see this phrase is back in Genesis 15.1. Think back to where, what Genesis 15.1 is. This is when the Lord comes to Abraham and makes a covenant with him that he would be his people. And he says, the word of the Lord came to Abraham. The, the covenant is made and the covenant is sealed right there. But this, this phrase shows God's sovereignty over all nations, over all persons. And yet it shows him as being personally involved with a, a group of people, his covenant people. Because it's the word of the Lord. This is God's covenant name. This is the name that was given to, Abraham, or to Moses as he was going into Egypt to set his people free. And he said, who should I say sent me? He said, Yahweh, I am I am the powerful promise keeper. I am the one who initiates relationships with people who are, who are not serving me, to call them into a relationship with me. This is a bit ironic, isn't it? That the word of Yahweh is coming to Jonah to give him a message to the Gentiles who are on outside of the covenant. And yet we see that God's sovereign control, God's authority does not just lie with His covenant people, but with every person in this world. And then it's the Word of the Lord. You know, the first time we see the Word of the Lord came to Abraham, we have 14 chapters where God has established in his, the authority and the power of His Word. Start in Genesis 1, right? God's Word spoke and everything came into existence. You think of Genesis 2, God, with His Word, created order. He told His people what the world was to like, what they were to do, and gave them a warning. With God's Word, as we get to Genesis chapter 6, in the rebellion of man, He causes the fountains of the deep and the skies to open up. By the power and authority of His Word, this world is destroyed, saving eight people. Noah's family comes off the ark. He comes with his words and commands to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, just like he told Adam and Eve. And they're fruitful. They multiply, but they refuse to fill the earth. They sought to replace God's word with their own word to become their own gods. And so the word of God came to them, confounded their language, scattered them throughout the earth, and created nations. And then God's word came to one man, Abraham, and told him in Genesis 12, leave your family, leave your land, go to the land that I will show you and you will be to me a father of many nations, and I will bless you, and those who bless you will be blessed, and I'll give you a great leader through whom the whole world will be blessed. That's the word of the Lord that came to Jonah. 
the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. This is the one that God selected. Not just any Jonah, this is Jonah, son of Amittai. He used to be my prophet. He is the one that I want for this job. I'm going to send him to Nineveh. Well, Jonah, son of Amittai, this is not the only place we see him. We don't know a whole lot about him, but if you go to 2 Kings chapter 14, 25, we see that God gave him one other message. And this message was to an Israelite, an Israelite king. This message was that in the reign of Jeroboam II, a wicked king of Israel, that God was going to give a gracious gift to Jeroboam, that the northern borders of Israel would be extended during his reign, but it was nothing because of what he had done. For gener- four generations prior to Jeroboam II was King Jehu. And King Jehu had removed Baal worship from the land. And God said, and made a promise, the covenant, God made a promise with Jehu and said, as a result of you removing Baal worship from the land, this is what I'm going to do. Your dynasty will last for four generations. And here's Jeroboam II. And here's Jonah. This is what God's going to do. He's going to extend your borders. And at this period in the history of Israel, the borders were as far north as they had been during the reign of King David and King Solomon. And that's all we know. Two little prophecies that God gave to Jonah, short, sweet, and yet so drastically different, aren't they? One being the audience of wicked Israelite kings, one going to wicked non-Israelite kings. Not just king, but a nation. 2 Kings 14, 25 shows no indication that Jonah had a problem with the first message. <laughs> Obvious reasons, right? This is his people. Certainly God, we are, we're the covenant people. Certainly you will extend our borders. But when it comes time to go to the Gentile nation, there's a different response, isn't there? But God sent his servant with his word to sinners. He said, arise and go, Jonah. Arise doesn't mean simply to stand up and begin making preparations and, you know, sometime down the road. Get it. No, it's just a sense of urgency. Jonah, get up. I've got a message for you. You've got to get going. It's time to go to Nineveh. Now, I would love to trace this little word through the book, but I'm not going to do it today. But you need to as we go through this month. This little word arise shows up many times throughout this book. And when it shows up, you need to note what follows it. What is rising? What is, how is someone or something responding when this word shows up in this book? Who or what isn't rising to do God's will, but is rather going down, 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 and down? Where was Jonah to go with such urgency? Nineveh. Well, what was Nineveh like? Well, I have a map I have put up on the screen to show you a little bit where it is. I know it's maybe a little more difficult to see. But it's up in northern Mesopotamia, central region of the whole world, has been since creation, it appears, as you look through the Bible. Along the Tigris River, it actually sits across the Tigris River from modern-day Mosul. 
If we go back to Genesis chapter 10, the verse I have up here on the screen, you'll see that the first time Nineveh was built was by Nimrod, one of my favorite names in the Bible. Nimrod built it. It was part of his great empire building. It has a long history, and even if you look at Genesis 10, 8 through 12, you will see even then this region was noted as being called the great city, a collection of even some smaller cities. So it had a long history of dominance. In fact, in the reign of King David and King Solomon, Solomon was unable to subdue the land. And so he actually subjected them to uh, servanthood at this time. But as Solomon's reign began to crumble, and as his uh, son then split the kingdom by the sovereign act of God, and Solomon's reign came to end, Assyria became a persistent thorn in the flesh of Israel. Now, at the time when Jonah is going to Nineveh, it's not yet the capital of Assyria, but it is still a very prominent, a very wealthy, a very central location to the empire of Assyria. Kings would live there from time to time. They would rule from there. But as we see in verse 2, it was not just called the great city. It was not just great in wealth, in power, and in influence, but it was also great in their wickedness. In fact, we fast forward a little bit. Nahum, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, we get a, a picture of what Nineveh is going to be like when they come into Israel about a hundred years later to wipe it out. Look at how he describes this group of people. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey, the crack of the whip and a rumble of wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, host of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. My mind goes back to those pictures I put up on the screen right at the beginning of the sermon. You see the, the, the rubble, the heap of destruction. Now, there are some other pictures I could have put up that I chose not to. Even thinking about the abortions that are done across this country. Talk about heaps of corpses and dead bodies. This is Nineveh. And God says, Jonah... Go to these sinners. Warn them of their evil and of coming judgment. Nineveh, we've become a word synonymous with the forces of evil. But what was Jonah to do when he arrived? Call out against it. Their evil has come up before me. Nineveh was around for a thousand years. Do you think Maybe some of the people of God question, Lord, where are you? Do you notice? Where's your justice? Where's your salvation? Where's your, where's your judgment? Are you still alive and well? Ah, we look at here and we see, yes, God does take notice. He does see. He does hear. 
He notes the tyrant rulers, the mass murderers, the countless unborn babies, the individuals who call themselves doctors yet are willing to snuff out the life of a defenseless unborn baby. From Nineveh to ISIS to the Nazis to even the abortion doctors in this land, God sees, for the evil has come up before Him. You know, we as Americans in the present government have only been around for a fifth of the time that Nineveh's evil reign. And like Nineveh, we are great. We are wealthy. We are powerful. But we're also wicked. But there's hope in Jonah. Now, you've read the whole book. I'm not going to focus on the rest of the book, but every time when God sends a message of warning for coming judgment, there's inferred within it an opportunity, an opportunity for repentance, an opportunity that they might turn and that God might relent of His judgment. And so, the word of the Lord came to Jonah saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. But let's read verse 3 again. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. But Jonah rose. It's the same word. He exercised great urgency, great importance on not going to Nineveh to obey God, but to oppose the very word of God. The same word that created the heavens. Which, by the way, you saw him <laughs> relaying that in his prayer in the fish. Jonah opposes the word of the Lord. Why? What would make him want to do that? Come back May 26th. Kevin will get there, Lord willing. But for today, the weight of this opposition is what we'll be left with today. And I think it's what the author would want us to pause on. Over a hundred times the sovereign word of the Lord comes to His prophets and they respond in obedience to His powerful and authoritative word, but not this time. In fact, notice just in this one verse how many words and phrases are used to describe Jonah's defiance in rebellion against God. He rose to flee. He went from. He went down to the Joppa, down into the ship. He paid a fare. He exercised great sacrifice to go to this faraway place. He went away from the presence of the Lord and going with pagan sailors. And three times, three times what word is used? Off to Tarshish. Say it three times fast. It's difficult. But he does. Off to Tarshish. Off to Tarshish. I'm going off to Tarshish. As if to say, my mind is made up. It's done. I am going to Tarshish. The only thing Jonah did in compliance to God's commission was to respond in urgency to flee. So where's Tarshish? Wow. Now, no one knows exactly where Tarshish is, but the general consensus is that it's somewhere on the southern tip of Spain. That's a long trip. That's an expensive trip. 
That's a lot of defiance. James Montgomery Boyce put Jonah's flight like this, however. Imagine a Jew living in New York during World War II, and the word of the Lord comes to him, telling him to go to Berlin to preach to Nazi Germany, and instead he goes to San Francisco to take a boat to Hong Kong. <laughs> Jonah wanted to get away. But did you notice where he wanted to get away to? Or what he was fleeing? It wasn't Nineveh. That's what you'd expect the author to say, right? Jonah wanted to get away from Nineveh. I want to get away from Nineveh. I want to get away from Nineveh. But instead, what is he seeking to flee from? The presence of the Lord. Now, Jonah recognized his problem was not primarily with Nineveh, but rather with God. Did Jonah really think he could get away from the presence of God? I mean, Psalm 139 is so clear. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Perhaps he did. He's not thinking very accurately about the authority of God's Word. And in his sin, he could be so swayed. But I think 1 Kings 17.1 may give us a little bit of insight into what Jonah may have been thinking here. 1 Kings 17.1, we have Elijah the Tishbite said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. This is a similar idiom that Elijah uses here. As the Lord, before whom I stand. As a description of his being in, in God's service. It's a picture of a servant who's been summoned by his master to stand before him. And the master comes and is ready to do whatever the master asks of him. And Jonah says, not me. <laughs> not today, Lord. I'm out of here. Not so much getting out of the land of God, but getting out of God's commissioning. Decommission me. If this is what you want me to do, give me my discharge papers right now. This has gone too far. Now, when we get to the end of the book, we will see Jonah's reasoning behind even this motivation. But for now, just consider this, this response of Jonah. God, not them. I'll go to anyone you want me to, but not them. When I was a young believer, age 11, 12 years old, the Lord impressed upon me a great burden for the people of the Soviet Union. And the Lord impressed upon me a desire to go to you know, pray that prayer, God, send me wherever you want. And God impressed upon me specifically to go to the Soviet Union. I said, Lord, will you please give me an opportunity to take Bibles there? I'd heard that they didn't have Bibles, that Bibles were taken away. I started corresponding with a man by the name of George E. Vins, who was a Russian pastor who'd been exiled to Elkhart, Indiana, First Baptist, and uh, had, had started putting out something like the Voice of the Martyrs publications to tell people about what was taking place to his fellow pastors in Russia while he was in America. And I praise the Lord. The Lord gave me the opportunity in 1992, to, after the communism fell in Russia, to take Bibles and to have the privilege of handing God's Word to these people who had never had a complete Bible in their hands before. 
One woman came through, got a Bible, and the most she'd ever seen at one time was one piece of paper of God's Word. But I pray, God, anywhere. I was willing to go to the Soviet Union. You know, we had some Bengali students into our home. The Joneses have had several students from Saudi Arabia into their home, a place where we cannot freely go. We have with us this morning missionaries from an undisclosed part of the world who are home for respite, who have gone to a place that is very dangerous. But we're here in America. And this is where the conviction kicks in. I'll go there, Lord. And God responds, but how about here? How about here? This is where I have placed you. Jonah said, I want to be decommissioned. I'm out of here. Fortunately, it's not the end of the story for Nineveh, for this book. For several hundred years later, God was going to send another servant, his servant, not just with his word, but as the word of God come in flesh, John 1 says. And Jesus was sent to sinners. His creation, but as the Bible is clear, we were his enemies. He came to those who would he know as he's preaching, as he's teaching in the synagogues, as he's interacting with the Pharisees, as he's interacting with the disciples, he looks even to his disciples and says, on that day you will all flee. In that day I must suffer. I must submit. He prays before going to the cross. He says, Father, if it be your will, please take this cup of suffering from me, but not my will, your will be done. And before going to the cross, before the weight of the sin is put upon him, before he is forsaken by his Father, I want you to look at John 17, verses 6 through 8, to see the prayer of Jesus. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. This is not a, a man who is seeking, a servant who is seeking to flee what God's will is, but one who has embraced going to the enemy to share the truth. Why? So that they might believe that they might have truth, that they might receive those words and repent. But that's not all he prays in John 17. You go on to John 17, 11 to 26, and just know some of these things. He prays in John 17, 11, keep them in your name. Why? Because I'm leaving the world, and they're still in the world. He says in, in verse 13, I'm coming to you, but I want them to have our joy fulfilled in them. Verse 15, keep them from the evil one because the world hates them as it's hated me. He goes on to verse 17, sanctify them in your truth. 
And then he says in verse 18, Father, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And that's where it comes to our application. God sent Jonah, his servant, with his word to sinners. God sent his servant, the word, to sinners. But God has also sent his church, his servants, with his word to sinners into this world. Two chapters later in John 20, Jesus would turn this prayer into a a commission to his disciples. He says, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So we've been given stewardship of this very same message of God, a message of warning to God's enemies, a message of hope, of salvation. 2 Corinthians 5 puts it this way, that we have been reconciled to God so that we can then be ministers of reconciliation, that we can go to the world and say, here is what God wants to do. Jesus died for you. He absorbed the wrath that you deserve for you. He has given you eternal life or offers it to you. Just turn to Him, trust to Him, repent of your sins, and you will have His peace. You'll be at peace with God, be able to stand blameless before Him in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And dear friends, dear church, we've been called to submit just like Jesus to God's will, to God's commission even if it involves suffering. Why? So that God can save. He is saying, we have this task. This is our call to go to the Assyrians, to go to the Nazi Germanys, to go to ISIS, to go to Africa, to go to Saudi Arabia. You know, a few years ago, as ISIS was, was going through Syria, killing Christians, sealing them out, Christians began to flee, going to refugee camps. But I read a story, I believe it was in one of the Voice of the Martyrs publications, where all of a sudden the Christians woke up and said, wait a minute, if we're all fleeing, there goes the gospel. And so some of them decided what they were going to do is get their families to safety, and then they would turn around, return to Syria put themselves back in harm's way, following the example of Jesus Christ, so that God's enemies, so that their enemies might hear how they could be saved from their sins in the coming judgment of God. But friends, we don't, we don't live in that culture. We don't live in that context. I know things are changing. But has anyone stepped in here this morning? Do we expect that to happen next week or next year? In fact, here in Indiana, we have some of the greatest freedoms even in the rest of the country. Do you realize that last week I stepped into one of our public, high, or public middle school's principal's office and asked if it'd be okay if I could have a Bible study there again next year and pray around the flagpole next year, next week for National Day of Prayer? You know what she said without hesitation? Of course. Do you know I meet with a principal across the street over here for lunch? Actually, all your Perry Township principals met for lunch with several of the area pastors a couple weeks ago for the very purpose of thanking the pastors and the churches in the area for partnering with them in ministry and for asking them to be more involved. And the headmaster of Perry Township is the one that initiated that. Do you realize that just last week I had a president of the PTA across the street at Jeremiah Gray came to me and said, 
we're short on volunteers for the back-to-school night next year. Would your church be willing to help out? And we're... And yet, and yet, as I studied this passage, as I thought through this, the con- God just brought to my mind at that moment how many hundreds of people, maybe even thousands in my lifetime that I've been a Christian, have walked past me where I have intentionally avoided initiating a conversation with them that have never been warned of coming judgment. How many times I look for the shortest line when maybe God wants me to stand in a long line (laughs) where I have a long time to carry on a conversation with someone? How many times do I go into an elevator in a hospital minding my being politically correct and looking straight ahead, right? Not engaging, yet realizing God has put me in in an elevator with someone who might need to hear a word from Him. How many times we go through self-checkouts, pay at the pumps? I know most of the times we're just not thinking, right? It's a matter of convenience. I'm in a hurry. I've got someplace to go. I've got something to do. I'm tired. But dear friends, what a gift we've been given. The freedom, the opportunities to share God's Word publicly. Who parallels our Nineveh for you today? Is there someone in your life you say, boy, God, I will share the word with anyone, but man, I really don't want them in heaven someday. But where is your Tarshish? The place where you go to get away from the commissioning of God. A man cave, a golf course, digital entertainment, Christian social clubs. God has put us here to be ministers of reconciliation. And to do that, we must go to his enemies, to sinners, and call them to repentance. Have you ever been someplace and felt the Holy Spirit prompting you to engage in a conversation with someone and you open not your mouth? You see, Jonah's not that bad, is he? When it comes right down to it, our rebellion might be more subtle, but doesn't it seem even uglier? Have you ever experienced the joy in your lifetime of sharing the good news with someone and seeing them turn from their sin, of being transformed from the gospel? That's God's desire for you. Dear friends, there is no greater joy in the world, this side of heaven, than sitting with someone and sharing with them God's word and seeing a life transformed right before your eyes. But you'll never experience that joy without scattering the seed. You know, today I've brought some, some tools up, up here with you, some things that are new, something we just have printed, these little business cards. Simple little thing, they're back in the, in the information kiosk in the foyer, it'll be in the Quiet Time Cafe, I have some up here you can pick up. It's simply just our service times. But notice, the back is blank. You know what that's for? Your contact information. Uh, you can get one of these little tracks at the Quiet Time Cafe, And there's six little drawings that you can memorize to help you share the gospel with someone. Friends, here's the point. There's no excuse if you say, I don't know what to say. Friends, there's no excuse. You hear it every week. There's resources in our Quiet Time Cafe. There's no excuse for me. We have resources. We must have the compassion of God. 
pick up a track. This track right here is one that's in the Quiet Time Cafe. I have some up here as well. On the back, there's a website you, that, you, that they can go to. And there's a little number at the end of the website. It's like a tracking device. Do you realize as a result of these tracks being handed out from people in our church that I have seen that this track has been read or this website has been visited from California to Florida? Because <laughs> when they go on that website, I get an email saying where it goes. You can sign up for your account, free. And you can see where your track went. But there's also an app that you can download of this track. It goes with you on your phone wherever you go. It has a little, about three-minute video you can play. There are resources there's no excuse, is there? But maybe you're sitting here this, this morning, and maybe you're not part of the church. Maybe you've never submitted to God's message of salvation, and you've never called upon Jesus to save you from your sins. The truth has come. A day is coming when you will be held accountable. Oh, dear friend. Jesus bore that wrath for you. Turn to him. Trust in him. Repent of your sins and be saved. As we close today, just closing questions. The word of the Lord has come to us saying, arise and go. Are we obeying his call? Will we obey his call? Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our salvation, that you are a gracious God who reached down to us out of our sin, who came to us, that while we were still sinning, you died for us, that we might be reconciled to you. God, give us your heart. May we not be like Jonah. But may we arise with urgency to see the lost faces around us and with your heart go. That your church might be built. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was going to close with a song. The song was sent earlier, but I'm just going to, have to let you be dismissed at this time. But a song we sang earlier was, We Face an Unfinished Task, right? There's a lot of work to do. Let's go and be faithful stewards of God's Word that's been given to us. You're dismissed.